I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Pursuit peeps, get ready to have some fun. Today's guest is an incredible storyteller, and he shares some of his most epic stories with us in this episode. Having started diving at the age of five, David Kulturi enjoyed some high-level success, and in 2009, he was the U.S. national champion in both 10-meter platform individual and synchronized. But he's forever thankful that he took a summer job in an amusement park after graduating from college, because it was there while working in a water stunt show that he took his first dives from a 20-meter perch and his passion for the sport he loved was reignited. Despite having endured more than his fair share of injuries over the years, competing from 27 meters, which is about 90 feet, David has been one of the standout cliff divers over the last decade. He became the youngest ever winner of a World Series event at the age of 24 and has earned 14 podium finishes and even snagged a silver medal at the 2019 World Cup. Away from diving, Dave is forever on the lookout for new and stimulating activities, both physically and mentally. And you'll definitely hear him geek out about his passion for high performance in our conversation. So listen closely this episode because interwoven between the stories and the laughing is a ton of wisdom, experience, and tools that you can use on your own journey too. On that note, if you've been wanting to make some crucial mindset shifts like David, in order to perform better, to love your sport again, or grow your confidence, start getting excited for my awesome Black Friday bundles that are here now, but only for a limited time. These bundles range in price because I wanted to make sure there are a good variety of opportunities for everyone. And this year, there are bundles available for both individuals and teams. Make sure you don't miss this window of opportunity. Go check out these special bundles at laurawilkinson.com slash Black Friday. Every single amazing bundle also comes with a free ticket into a new workshop that I'll be hosting in January called Turning Obstacles into Opportunities. So make sure you take advantage of these limited time bundles over at laurawilkinson.com slash Black Friday. Before we get started, make sure you smash that subscribe or follow button. Give Pursuit of Gold a five-star review. And the best thing that you could do for us is to share your favorite episodes with your friends. Word of mouth is the best way for a podcast to grow. So we need your help in that so that we can continue to grow to that next level so we can bring you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. David Kulturi, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I am so stoked to talk to you once again. Thank you, Laura. So good to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, I interviewed David for Hope Sports, another podcast that I used to help host. And that was a lot of fun. But you know, it's been a few years since then. And your hair has grown out quite a bit. I, this is an audio <laughs> podcast. But man, I, I'm looking at these luscious locks. And I'm super jealous because his curls are just popping way more than mine. He's got the volume. He's got the like, I can see the sun like highlights in there. I mean, it's gorgeous. Like what do, what do you do to make it so beautiful? Cause mine is not um, that beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think good hair is, is kind of like healthy aging genes are our number one. So I gotta, I gotta thank my parents for that one, <laughs> but I did get a nice hairstylist. I didn't grow my hair out until after COVID. So I was always buzz cut short haired Dave. Um, so yeah, my hairstylist recommended a great product. I'm not sponsored by them, but I will plug them. They're called inner sense. I love them. Okay. I've not heard of that. I'm gonna have to look into it. Shampoo, conditioner and leave in and, uh, just, you know, detangle after the pool and, and let it shine. There you go. Does it get really tangly after a diving session? 
if I'm in and out of the water consistently and I brush it, it's not that bad. It's actually when I'm out of the water. Like if I'm on vacation and don't get in the water and don't, don't wash my hair a couple days. Oh my gosh, cobwebs yeah. back there. Nice, <laughs> nice. Okay, well, enough of the hair stuff. I'm sure people that don't have curly hair are like, whatever, guys, we don't care. Yeah. I care because I have curly hair. But let's go like back to the beginning because you are crazy and you jump off 90-foot structures and hit the water at 60 miles an hour and like all kinds of nutty stuff. That is not how I first met you. You were like way down on the little tiny 10 meter with me. And we were thinking that was really scary and, and hard and stuff. Um, but where did it really it kind of start for you? It started with normal diving. I fell in love with the sport like I think most divers do. And I grew up in the Midwest and I played all the sports that I could. I'm super happy I did everything at a young age from soccer, football, baseball, basketball, hockey, swimming and diving, gymnastics, tennis, baseball, lacrosse, like literally everything. Whoa, yeah. Yeah. I'm so <laughs> glad I did it all. And huge thank you to my parents for shuttling me around from sport to sport. I guess you kind of look at it as like babysitting in that essence. And I could get <laughs> out of my mom's hands for a little bit. But no, it was awesome. And I, I fell in love with diving at a young age. I was super lucky to have good coaches and good teammates starting with Ed Goodman and then Buck Smith at Legacy Diving and eventually moving on to dive with Adam at Purdue. And the sport has been such a huge part of my life, as you know. I mean, it's not who we are, it's what we do, but it's been such a big piece of my heart and my soul. And, and I love everything about it. You were doing sports very different from diving. What attracted you to diving versus all the ball sports or anything else like that? I think a little bit of the freedom and the organized chaos. Like I, I kept getting kicked out of gymnastics class because I was like running around and jumping on the trampoline when I wasn't supposed to. And so my mom was like, all right, diving, you can jump and flip as much as you want. And I think the bigger contact sports, like I was such a little squirt. Mm -hmm. I didn't break a hundred pounds till I was like 17. I was just this small. <laughs> Are you serious? Wow. <laughs> it was a mix, you know, it was the feeling Luckily, I get to do it to this day, 30 years after I started that feeling of jumping, flipping, twisting through the air. I mean, you know it. Most acrobatic sports know it. It's so liberating. It's so freeing. And it's a pathway to flow. And it it gets mm -hmm. you kind of out of your head and out of the universe, but into the universe in the same yeah. way. You know, my free falling is like my yeah. favorite song. I'm going to free fall out into nothing. I'm going to leave this world for a while. I'm like, that is diving. That is what diving is right there. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, it was a lot. But I think the older I get, like, you know, I still love the sport itself, the actual physicality of it and the feeling, but I really love the community and the culture and the people and the lifestyle that goes with it. Like, that's one of the big things that I've held on to. And it's so incredible. Diving is just the right size to be big enough to travel all over the world, but mm -hmm. small enough that you know, everybody in it, you know, after doing it for 30 years, like I literally have friends all over the world and they feel like family to me. So it's a very cool accent to it. Yeah, I do. That is one of my favorite things about the sport. It's like every time you go to me, it's like a family reunion, right? It's like just this fun kind of, yeah, it's just so fun. It's so freeing because it is your family, like this worldwide family we have. And, and it's the same group of people usually like year after year for a while, like there's definitely different seasons of it. But yeah, and with social media now too, you can stay connected with everybody forever. It's so cool. Like watching all my friends like in Australia or Italy or whatever, like watching their kids grow up now. It's like, wow, this is so wild. Like I've known you since you were 17. That's so right. crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you go through the different generations. I mean, I was a little squirt when you were getting towards the end of your career. Yeah. And now I'm the older kid on the pool deck. Like I still dive with the club divers at Mission Viejo. Sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I still doing here? But no, it's fun. You go through the different generations and it really is like a family. It's so cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Full circle there. I love it. So you've had big transitions in the sport itself, like going from high school to college, 
going from college to like kind of diving in that what like summer fair thing that you did and that's how you got into it yeah like tell me about some of these big transitions and like maybe the good and the bad about that because like as people are approaching different seasons of their different careers in sport like sometimes we don't know how to handle that whether it's getting recruited you know walking through injuries or what do i do after college do i keep going Mm -hmm. do i try something different like take me through some of your transitions I guess the first one was dedicating everything to diving. So as a little kid, I told you I was doing all these different sports and it was around high school where it was like, okay, are we going to make diving a real focus? And so kind of letting go of all the other sports and really just focusing on diving was a big thing. It was great in the sense that it gave me more time and more energy and resources just to do that. And I progressed a lot, but it comes with a lot of sacrifices. And I think any serious junior diver will tell you, I spend all my time at the pool. And whether it's commuting because we had to travel an hour each way to practice, training five, six days a week for long hours on end, like I get the nickname that I'm a fish or a dolphin or a monkey or whatever with my friends that I see very rarely and occasionally because I'm so dedicated to this one thing. And so it's a choice you have to make. And you carry that with you from high school into college sports. And I think Mm -hmm. you take it even to another exponential level. And so NCAA diving, especially if you're taking it at a serious division one level, like it is a full-time job. You are taking a full class load and training full-time with the team. And again, it's awesome. And there's a bunch of huge benefits that go with it, like the community, like the culture, pushing yourself, cool challenges, learning skills that help you in and out of the water, but it's a big sacrifice. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, over these 30 years of diving that I've done, I've missed countless celebrations, birthdays, vacations, holidays, trips, and stuff like that. It's a choice you have to make. You know, I was listening to one of my mentors recently, and he was saying, Obsession can be a good thing and can bring about success, but it's not always good for you. Mm. And so finding that balance, what that means to you is really important. And I think every athlete has to do that with the different stages of their careers. And Mm -hmm. so going through my transitions of junior diving, focusing on a big thing in high school, transitioning into college. And then I think every college athlete hits that mark of at the end of college, like, okay, was this just a short time fun thing as I was a kid and a young adult? Or am I going to try to take this to the next level, whatever that next level may be? If you're fortunate enough to be in an established mainstream sport, like sure, maybe there's a professional league for you. Or if you're in a maybe smaller niche sport like ours, you got to explore different options. Got to get creative. <laughs> you got to get creative. And so that turned into me lighting myself on fire and being a clown diver in a circus <laughs> show. <laughs> you know, totally normal kids. Maybe don't try totally. that at home. <laughs> yeah. While also taking the MCAT and studying for med school. So there was a lot of mixed Oh, okay. I didn't know about yeah. that part. Wow. Okay. Lighting yourself on fire and studying for the MCAT. That's quite a combo. It was very interesting being in like the show Ski Shack, like going through MCAT flashcards while, you know, these other (laughs) yahoos love them. Skiers and circus performers are like, what is this guy doing? (laughs) It was a very uh, tumultuous and unsure part of my life, but it was super fun. And I enjoyed every second of it. In the end, I'm glad I made this decision that I did. So in the transition from college to a gap year, which a lot of people take, I decided to follow my heart with high diving, worked in the amusement park stunt show, fell into competitions and professional high diving was still very new at this point. The Red Bull Cliff Diving World Series started in 2009. I graduated in 2011 and they were really kind of begging people to join the series because Mm -hmm. it wasn't so established. There weren't so many divers. You know, at this time, myself, Stephen Labou, Kyle Michiro, and other divers from Purdue, like we just make a video reel of us doing a few dives from 20 meters. 
-hmm. And Red Bull's like, oh, these guys got it. Like, sure, we're going to pay for your flight to Australia. Come try out for the team. And yeah, after that qualifier, making the team, me, Steve and Kyle kind of never turned back and made it a decision to make it a full career. And here we are 12 years later, like absolutely insane. Made a legit career out of it. That's so cool. A lot of people, at least, especially back in my back in my day, when I say that, I say that a lot right now. I'm like, oh my gosh, how old am I? Like 80. But back in my day, people would go like whatever kind of Olympic trials or whatever was like following their last year of college was they would kind of like end on a note like that. And then Mm. they would just move on. Like that was time to retire because there was no afterlife unless you wanted to be some old person trying to make the Olympics, which was such a not normal Mm -hmm. thing back then. You know, and then kind of the cruise ships started coming in a lot more of the circus type stuff, which has been really cool. Like things like that, that have kind of come and gone, you know, in different parts of the world. I mean, there's circuses everywhere, which is kind of neat. It has been really cool to watch all of you guys kind of make this whole living out of diving. Like you can actually kind of make a living diving. I don't, it's probably not really easy at this point. It's still, I'm sure, a struggle and maybe a balance of trying to add an income somewhere else, but it is neat to watch. But tell me about that first competition after you made it onto the Red Bull World Series, because it was not what you expected, was it? No, no, not at all. And I'm actually even going to back up and tell a quick my first platform competition as a junior diver. So oh, people, please do. People I want to hear now. this. <laughs> yeah. So people look at us now as like professional cliff divers and they're just like, oh, you're not afraid of heights. You know, you're fearless. This is just natural for you. And it's not like courage is a learned skill, just like anything else. Becoming a professional extreme sports athlete, like everybody goes through these things. Yeah. So as an 11 year old, I was still diving in Ohio and didn't have access to a platform. So I went down to Ron O'Brien's Fort Lauderdale diving camp and learned a platform list in a week or two, and then went to University of Buffalo for JO regionals as an 11 year old and was diving on seven meter. And this was like a month after camp. You know, I learned a list, took a month off, just diving springboard. <laughs> and, and, then then just go, it and then go to zone. <laughs> yeah. And it was actually going pretty well. I think like I actually did pretty well. And my last dive was arm stand somersault on seven meter. And I was not good at handstands. And so I kicked up and balked on the first one and kicked up on the second one and was going to fall down and balk again. But back in the day, you could actually walk on your hands. It was Mm -hmm. just a deduction. It wasn't a full balk. So I started walking backwards. And then when I walked forwards to get to the end of the platform, one of my hands slipped off the tower. And I did like a (laughs) cartwheel round off and do this half twist. And I can still see like the bright lights of the ceiling of the pool burned into my memory. And I just like do a cartwheel (laughs) round off back smack flat into the water. Please tell me there's video footage of this somewhere. (laughs) I hope my mom has it somewhere. It'd be amazing. (laughs) Like I'm 11. All I had to do was do that dive normal. I would have made it to nationals, failed the dive, didn't make it, get out of the pool, go to the locker room crying. I think my mom had to come and get me. So no, I was not just born a platform diver or uh, not afraid of heights diver. And so working your way up through learning, I mean, any diver who learns a platform list, especially if you got to take it up all the way to 10 meter, learn a full 10 meter list, like it is full of fear and smacks and blood, sweat and tears. It's a journey going through all of that and then taking it to the circus and learning how to high dive was crazy. And it was super cool and fun. And, you know, I had a little bit of experience from 20 meters. But back in the day before these facilities like Fort Lauderdale now, or there's a high dive in Austria, there's a full facility in China, Diving Canada is doing a lot for high diving building facilities. You know, we didn't have training opportunities. Mm -hmm. So we're doing this, you know, seasonally at these circus shows, not from 27 meters. And so I get to my first event in France, And I'm just taken aback at what Red Bull cliff diving is like. It's so different than a normal, traditional springboard and platform diving event. 
Yeah, like like how so? Oh. Please describe the difference for us so everybody <laughs> understands fully what the difference is because it's big. Yeah, exactly. You know, the contrast of a traditional springboard and platform diving event, mostly indoors. Sometimes you're outside, so you have to deal with environmental challenges. But it's very much like quiet on the tee box, very prim and proper. Nobody's making noises. It's very focused. And you have your moment on the platform. Mm -hmm. My first Red Bull cliff diving event was in Bonifacio, Corsica. And it's this seaside town on a French island. And the old Citadel wall is probably like 50 meters high. And so they built a platform like in the middle of the wall. And when I say platform, I mean like a sheet of plywood with no guardrails or anything. <laughs> and you get hooked into a harness and they actually belay you down to a little ladder. And then you climb onto the platform and you have a little like four by eight sheet of plywood to stand on there floating on this wall, looking out over the Mediterranean Sea. So just like the feeling my, of being my palms there. are sweating right now, just <laughs> exactly so <you> know. <laughs> like shimmying the shimmying the harness off and throwing your shoes down and getting ready. And then you're just floating on this wall. It's very scary to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then you look out over the seaside and there's hundreds of boats like these big. I mean, Bonifacio is a very wealthy town. So there's these big yachts and nice boats and they're all partying. Red Bull, if they do anything well, they do a lot of things well. They put on a great event. It's a big party. Mm -hmm. And so people are just raging. It's a weekend. They're drinking on their boats. They're playing music. They're honking their horns. There is no prim proper respect for the athlete quiet on the tee. Right. It's just let rage and have a good time. And well, and also, so, unlike the maybe dozens of people watching an indoor regular diving event, there's like tens of thousands of people raging on these boats, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it's a big, big event. You know, as a 22 year old kid taken aback by this, like I'm feeling like a rock star 100 feet in the sky over the ocean. Like it's awesome. But I'm maybe not fully focused on what I should be doing. And so I'm just full of energy and pumped up. And my first dive is our, our voluntary, a front double half. And doing a front one and a half into a brandy from 100 feet high, you got to go real slow and you got to take it easy with a lot of control. And I did not do that because I was so stoked <laughs> and amped up. And so I'm, I'm, you know, vertical with another 40 feet to go. And I'm putting my oh arms my up gosh. trying to put on the air brakes. And I just slam on my butt into the oh. water. When you land on your butt from that high, like people maybe experience a normal diving, but like it doesn't matter how hard you squeeze your butt, like water is going <laughs> up there <laughs> and then it's coming back out. We have great safety. Like we have scuba divers in the mm -hmm. water that are there to help us. And, you know, they're coming close to me, like holding me, making sure that I'm OK. And I'm like, hey, I'm OK, but you should probably back up and like clear the area. <laughs> <laughs> And so, yeah, I'm just in total shock and I get out of the water and I even get scraped up on the rock. So like now my elbows and my shins are bleeding and my suit from the impact. It was like an old Purdue suit. It was probably a couple years old and I didn't realize that the suit was so old, but it had actually blown out <laughs> underneath, like in between oh my, my legs. So now I'm just wearing like a Tarzan loincloth. <laughs> I'm like covered in blood. I got to go up to the athlete's area, like deck change, throw away the brown and bloody towel throw away my suit and I get back up to the athletes area and I'm with Kyle and Steve and I'm just like dude what is going on what are we doing here <laughs> oh my goodness and so you, that wasn't your last dive of the day either that was, was the it? first that was the very first dive <laughs> I was in last place and I had to fight my way back up maybe a couple spots but yeah definitely ended towards the end of the bracket and so yeah it was not by any means a beautiful easy start and Steve and I talk about this all the time it took a while before you even get some sense of calm and control on those platforms. I mean, I'm sure you went through this with 10 meter diving and people see the best of your best. You see your Olympic gold win and you see Laura doing the biggest, hardest dives in the world. And you're like a stoic freaking statue up there. You know, you take no time, you get to the end, you get set, you take one breath, one, two, three, go. 
And that's what everybody wants to do. But mm-hmm. it's not easy. Mm-hmm. There's a thousand things going through your head. Your heart is racing. Trying to get to that level of control and focus is a journey. And it's super, super tough. So I would actually love what are or what were the big secrets to making that happen? And did you just make it a point from the beginning that you were always going to do that? Or did you struggle in the beginning? Like, did you do the one, two, three, go, one, two, three, go, one, two, three, go. Oh my gosh. Reset. Oh my gosh. What am I doing? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I'm, I'm human too. Yeah. I went through all the things and I, I remember first learning 10 meter standing disease is totally a thing. And for those listening, not in our sport, standing disease is kind of where you are starting to get paralyzed up on the board happens to be on springboard too, but you're thinking too much and you're thinking usually about all the wrong things. And that's why you're stuck there on the end, not being able to go. And it's easy to get stuck in that. And then it's hard to get yourself out of it. As I was learning 10 meter, I was starting to experience some of that. You know, I wasn't sure what to do, but I was really, really thankful that synchro was just coming into it. So for those that don't know, synchro diving is two people going at the same time next to each other on the platform or springboards next to each other. They're doing the same dives. I was doing it with my teammate, Patty, who is also my coach's wife. And she was the current national champion. She won the first national championships I ever went to. She won. So I was like, oh my gosh, she's the national champion. And then I'm like, I could just learn 10 meter. I was terrible. And they wanted me to do synchro with her because we had similar styles. And I was like, okay, that was a lot of pressure, like diving with someone so good and and the coach's wife and like all these things. So it was really intimidating. But she didn't even count to three. She counted to two and then we had to go. And so I was like, there's no way I can't not go. Like somebody would kill me, I'm sure. And so I think one time I didn't go and she and Patty is like the sweetest person on the planet. Like, I'm not kidding. She is so full of grace and just so amazing. And she was so pissed at me that one time I didn't go. So I was like, oh, I I can't ever do that again. So I was more scared of her reaction than Mm -hmm. what would happen to me in the water. So I just was like, okay, if she counts to two, I have to go. Like I have to go. So it's one, two, go. And we went. And so from that point on, I realized how helpful that was for me to just turn around and go. So I, on my own, had to pretend like I was doing synchro. So I would kind of get set back on the platform. And then when I walked to the end, I wasn't thinking anymore. Like I had to be done with my thinking. And I was just thinking of, okay, I'm going to go here. I'm going to turn around. Like I try to be in the moment, maybe think of the one correction or one action to focus on. Once I put my arms up, one, two, go. And I just went. Like I, I just had to stop thinking. But you know, you have to practice that. You can't just get into the meat and like know how to do that. You have to do that in practice. And so it took a little while, but me imagining that I was doing synchro was really, really helpful for that. And so, and I went through a period after that where I got lost in the air. I threw my head sure. back on something and I was spotting the wrong, like the sky instead of the water. And I started closing my eyes. And so everything was terrifying. It was kind of a similar thing. I was really, really scared. It got to the point where I would count in my head like one, two, go, and nothing was happening. I got to the point where I had to count out loud. I felt so stupid because I'm counting out loud. And at international competitions, people are standing there with you. You look like you're five years old. But I was like, that's the way I can go because people are now listening to me and I'm accountable to go because I'm doing this out loud. And I was like, whatever, if it gets me off the platform. And that's what helped me kind of through that period of time. I had scripture that I liked too that helped me like take my mind off of what was happening. But then I had to count out loud to keep myself accountable. I was like, I don't care if I look nuts. This is what's working for me right now. So that's what I'm going to do. Peer pressure. I love it. Yep. (laughs) Never underestimate some good peer pressure. But you know, we all all have to figure out our thing and what helps us. But we all, most of us go through that. And I want kids to know it's not like the end, right? Like it's okay to have a battle. It's okay to have a struggle with that. 
keep trying different things until you figure out what works. Like it is possible yeah. to get through, right? Exactly. Oh, and it's not just okay. Like it should be a battle. It's, you know, these things that we care about, we put so much work into, like they wouldn't be worth so much if they weren't so hard. Like it should beat you up. It should make you crazy a little bit. Like mm -hmm. that's the point. Exactly. Um, so yeah, no, I, you know, I try to realize it myself and have some awareness and get out of my victim pessimist mindset that I can fall into every once in a while. But especially now that I get the opportunity to coach and give back and share the pool with younger divers, I'm like, dude, hey, these tough days, like these are the ones that define you. Like this is mm -hmm. the good stuff. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's it. the good stuff. Oh, I like that. I like that. <laughs> Walk me through like rough first meet there, you know, but as you're kind of getting into like, how long did it take you to get more comfortable, not just doing 27 meters and you're, you're only doing it in season, like and in yeah. season is what, like two and a half months or something. It's not very mm -hmm. long. The busy part of season is June through August, but the full season can last from May, June to September, October, November. So it used to be six months on six months off. Okay. Yeah. You get the most comfortable when you're doing the high diving repetitively. Obviously, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you always feel the best at the beginning or like in the middle of the season and towards the end of the season. Mm -hmm. And so those first couple of years, it was just realizing like, okay, the first dives in the beginning of the season are going to be terrifying. It's going to take you a little bit to get comfortable again. But you know, with gradual exposure, you'll get more comfortable and figure out the tools that work and don't work and find your routines and find what's helpful. Mm -hmm. But it really was just a matter of getting the reps off. And I think that's a big thing for 10 meter divers, three meter divers, tying your shoes, going up into space, whatever right. it is like, yeah, the repetition is what gets you automated and feeling better and being able to do it safely and successfully over time and calm down and get out of your head a little bit. I have a couple questions on that. So with what you're doing, though, you're hitting at what, 60, 65 miles an hour, mm -hmm. something like yeah. that. Yeah. I saw you guys drop that watermelon when it like exploded on impact. I was like, exactly. oh, okay. Obviously, that's going to take a toll on your body. I mean, that's like getting mm -hmm. into a high speed highway car accident, like several times a day as you're training. So how limited are you in what you can actually do from the top? The number of repetitions is always a thing that you need to keep in your mind. And it's always subjective. People always ask, like, how many high dives can you do in a week? And I'm like, well, it totally depends on the person and how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. If you're totally fresh with no injuries and you're strong, you've been training for it. Yeah, you can maybe go up 10, 15, 20 would be a huge number in one week. You know, that's such a big contrast to doing 20 10 meter dives in a day. Your limited accessibility to doing these high number of repetitions is such a crazy thing. So you really have to take advantage of the mental training. Mm -hmm. And really use your visualization and make sure every rep counts and try to stay as focused and make the most out of your time leading up to during and after the experience. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that I maximized those minutes and, and had total efficiency out of that was a big part of the process. And then learning where is my sweet spot? What's the right amount of training to feel prepared and ready? And what's overtraining? What's too much? a big difference between traditional diving and high diving, the margin of error is so much smaller. You can't really take a hit and get back up there super easily. Right. There's take a hit and go to the hospital and make sure you're okay. That was also a, a learning lesson and something that I had to learn the hard way going through a couple big injuries and a couple big comebacks. Every time you say something, I have like 30 questions. So walk us through one of these instances where you couldn't just bounce back up, but you had to go to the hospital. And you know, how do you come back from something like that? If you're having to go to the hospital from a dive, if something happens on a dive, I mean, that's going to be a little traumatic, I'm, I'm imagining. For me, that would be traumatic. <laughs> so walk us through that and like how you came back. I've had two rotator cuff surgeries on the same shoulder, and those are tough. Some of it's wear and tear and some of it's acute trauma. But I think the little crazier and more fun story for our listeners is going to be the rupturing my spleen while jumping from a paraglider. 
And so this was preparing for our Red Bull Cliff Diving Switzerland event. We do what's called a teaser dive to promote the event. And this particular teaser dive was to team up with the world's best paraglider who's from Switzerland. And I'm tandem paragliding with him with a little cutting board attached to my harness by a climbing rope. And the idea was to paraglide along the lake where the competition is happening and put the board down, unstrap from the harness, stand up on this board from the paraglider and jump into the lake in front of the Tells Chapel, which is named after William Tell, who started the Swiss Revolution back in the 1500s. So it's a cultural connection to the host country. It's cool. It's fun. It's exciting. It's extreme with the paragliding. It's got all these elements. Mm -hmm. However, it just wasn't something you could really practice for, had never been done before. Super shaky, unstable takeoff position, really hard to judge how high you are. Mm -hmm. So long story short, we do four dives from the paraglider. The first two do not go very well. We came in low on the first one. I landed on my face from probably 15 meters. And so we overcorrect on the second one. And from probably 30 to 35 meters, I'm going to land on my face again. And so I'd instinctively roll over onto my side. And so I kind of side splat onto the water almost pass out. My project manager is in the water holding me, making sure I'm okay. We almost call the project off, but I'm a little stubborn and I really want to make this happen. So we go back up in the last, the three and four attempts, we actually do really well. Jump from 20 meters, which was the height we were supposed to do a somersault, land on my feet, all good. A couple hours after the event, I'm doing interviews and I'm starting to get super lightheaded and dizzy. I'm like, this is not normal. Something's going wrong. I like am kind of in denial because I'm supposed to compete in a few days time. So I go back to my hotel room. I try to rest it off. Not good. I have to go to the hospital, end up having an emergency splenectomy. So I wake up in the ICU the next day. Surgeon comes in and she tells me I had over half my blood supply pooling in my abdominal cavity. They almost life flighted me to Zurich and they thought I wasn't going to even make the flight. So like truly lucky to be alive. And oh my so, goodness. <laughs> yeah. So not, not only is this a big injury and a big thing to come back from mentally and physically, but it's also one of those, you know, awakening moments And not to sound too cliche or cheesy, but like, you know, having a near death experience like that and waking up and realizing how lucky you are, like, it was a big perspective change for me. Mm -hmm. And in a great way, not trying to take anything for granted and really appreciating the small stuff and the big stuff. It was a really cool journey for me to come back from that. And so to get back to your original question, you know, the process of recovering physically is a big deal. You know, you got to let the surgery take its place and hold, do all the OT, PT, make sure your body's right, come back physically. Not that that's easy, but in a sense, I think the mental recovery can be a lot harder for athletes Mm -hmm. and everyday people, depending on what you're getting back to. And so telling myself that, hey, this was a crazy stunt. It wasn't normal high diving. You're going to be okay. You know what you're doing was a big part of that, but slowly getting back up and again, gradual progression, gradual exposure to doing high diving. It took me about a year to come back from that injury. I am happy to say that I came back stronger and better. No, I have one less organ inside of me, maybe more room for ice cream, which is a good thing, but (laughs) I really did use the time wisely. And so I think a big lesson from injuries that I've learned and that I tried to tell other people and other athletes is like, this does not have to be bad downtime, garbage time in the sense that I think a lot of people look at injuries like, oh, why do I have to go through this? Poor me. Why me? You know, Mm -hmm. this is such a bummer. This is such a detriment. Like injuries can be the best thing that happened to you. And so if you use that time wisely to do some inner work, to do some mental work, you know, you have extra time. It's a forced break. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that's exactly what you need. 
And so it really helped me educate myself in a lot of different areas and align me into where I really wanted to go. Who am I? Where do I want to go? And that was a big part of that injury was kind of taking that transition, like we talked about before, into living a more authentic, healthier, happier me. Tell me about some of the things that you did during that time to help with the mental and emotional work, because I agree a thousand percent with all the things that you're saying. And my coach, Kenny, has always kind of said this and found it to be so true throughout my life that like you can remember being hurt, like you can remember that you had pain, but you can't recall the physical pain. Like you can't feel it again quite the same way, but emotional pain or mental pain, like you can bring that back in a heartbeat as soon as you start thinking about something traumatic that happened, you know? So that does take like a lot of people don't realize that, yes, you will physically recover, but like the mental and emotional part can take a lot longer sometimes. So what were some of the things that you did to help with that? Because it sounds like you did a really good job, like knowing that coming back, you are going to have to prepare yourself mentally and emotionally to do this again. So walk us through some of the things that you did, not just physically, but like on the other side of that to help. So coming back from that, you know, number one, I had a huge support system. And that was a big, big piece to this. So family, friends, loved ones being there to support me was a huge number one. And number two was deciding who do I really look up to? And where am I? And where do I want to be? And how can we make a plan to get in between those? Mm -hmm. And so deciding what books to read, what podcasts to listen to, what journals to write in, those were all big pieces. And then starting to do the inner work of like, What are my values? What's my purpose? What's my mission? How do I get from the big, hairy, audacious goal at the top and building out a framework and a structure in between? Those were things that were truly, truly beneficial to me. You know, I think the first high performance book I read was High Performance Habits by Brendan Burchard. I really Mm -hmm. liked it. And it kind of sent me down a path of high performance Mm -hmm. that I really liked. And I got into stoicism. So uh, Ryan Holiday is a great modern stoic writer. And it's actually his daily stoic journal, which I have right next to me on my desk. That was the first journal that actually got me journaling regularly, Mm -hmm. which was a, a huge piece to kind of identify, you know, the tone and the content of your inner voice. And how do you talk to yourself? And what are your thoughts? And then a big podcaster coach that I followed is Ben Bergeron from the CrossFit world. The episode that I always send everybody is called the fulfillment framework. And so he takes a business planning strategy and just applies it to your personal life, defining what your core values are, who do you want to be, what's your big, hairy, audacious goal three to five years out, and actually structuring it down like a business plan. Mm -hmm. How do we do that on the macro into the micro level of Mm day-to-day actionable items? And so those were all huge pieces. And and it honestly, it took years. Like this wasn't a thing where I got it all done in a couple months or even just in that one injury recovery. You mm-hmm. know, these are still, these are documents that I update quarterly regularly and they should change. You know, we change as human beings. Your goals should change your purpose, mm-hmm. your visions, like all of those can change. Even your values, like they can change a little bit. So honestly, the first habit from Brendan Burchard's high performance habits is clarity. And having true clarity and a real awareness to who you are, who you want to be, what you want to do, I can't tell you how valuable and how priceless of a quality that is, that peace of mind. It really, really was a was a game changer for me. Was that hard for you to discover who that was for you? Oh, absolutely. You have to go through some dirt of your past of like, you know, who was I? Why was I doing those things? Why was I not being authentic? You know, are these friendships that I have, are they real? Are they genuine? Did they like me for who I actually am or who I was trying to be? There's some tough things that you have to face in there. And realizing to yourself, like, hey, I've been saying that these are values of mine, but my actions don't align with that. 
Mm. So are they actually values or are they just placeholders or am I just kind of faking it? You know, that's a tough thing to look yourself in the mirror and contemplate like, hey, am I actually the person that I say I am and who I want to be? Being honest with yourself. It sounds so like, I don't know, so simple or so cliche, but so many people aren't because we just want to be this thing and we don't often see who we are. And if you're not taking a good, honest look at who you are and where you are, how are you going to become that person you want to be? Because you're not at an honest starting place. So you'll never quite get to that place. But I, I love how you were talking about setting those clear, big goals and, you know, kind of reverse engineering it, right? Creating a plan to get back there. I love to teach that to people with goal setting because I think goal setting is huge because you have to know where you're going. Like if you want to go somewhere, like if you don't have a, like an end destination, you're just going to wander around aimlessly. Like there might be Mm -hmm. some, some nice views along the way, but like, where are you going in life? Like you're not really going to get anywhere, you know, and you are productive at least. So I think that's really, really smart. And that also helps you let go of other kind of expectations. Like I just dropped a whole podcast on like goals versus expectations, but there's a big difference. And a lot of people, especially like younger athletes coming up, have this huge weight of like expectations, whether it's their own, their parents, their coaches, like they're just carrying around this massive weight of expectations on them. And it's like, you shouldn't have that. Like expectations are your feelings and kind of how you want other people to feel and things like that, where goals are something you can tangibly shoot for and accomplish. So let's like focus on that and let go of all this other stuff that you can't control. So I like that you got down, you were real honest with who you are, who you wanted to become, what you wanted to do, and you created a plan to get there. I think that's huge. And you said that you weren't able to just do it in that one year, like it was a long process, but that injury actually put you on that path. So I do love that injuries can sometimes be this catalyst to these huge opportunities. I think people overlook that all the time. A hundred percent. It was the impetus for sure. It was life-changing and it is a process. It continues to this day. And I'm going to, was it a podcast that you released the goals versus expectations one? Or it, where did you it literally, that? as we're recording, it came out today. So yeah, it's just a little short one. So you can go check okay, it out. After cool. this. Yeah, I'm definitely going to go check it out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The goals versus expectations is huge. And one of my favorite quotes is we don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. You know, it's crazy how we don't, like you were saying, we don't even realize the expectations that we have. Sometimes maybe we can be aware of them, but you know, just like me coming into my first platform event as an 11 year old or my first high diving event as a 22 year old, you know, what did I expect? I'm just going to come in and make this blazingly open and I'm just going to be a master at it from the get go. Like, no, of course not. You didn't train for this. Having the goals laid out and the framework to train for them is a huge piece to the puzzle. As I was reading, I mean, I've known you for a million years, but I was like reading your little kind of bios and stuff and and the events that you've done really well at. And, and, you know, there's lots of ups and downs. And it sounds like when things first kind of kicked off, you were amazing. Like, weren't you like the youngest one to win um, a World Series event at like 24 years old? You were being top three at events all over the place. But it's been kind of this like up and down road for you. How do you stay motivated as you have amazing seasons, then tougher seasons, like injuries, you're coming back, like all this up and down, like how, again, do you stay motivated? And I'm sure that has changed because it's been like a decade now, right? And I'm sure it's changed over the years, but like what keeps you motivated to keep going through the ups and downs? Thanks for aging me there with the, it's over a decade now. Yeah, you're uh, welcome. Hey, I just need to bring you up to my level so I don't feel like the only old one in the room. <laughs> no, it's cool. I mean, looking back is super fun and and the records were awesome. They're all getting taken down. You know, I, I had a few records at Purdue and then Bodia smashed them all. I had a few records <laughs> at Red Bull. And now Aiden Hesloff has taken them all down. So it's, it's fun to see the progression. But no, motivation is an interesting concept. And I think it's interesting when you talk to high performance experts, you know, some people are like, 
oh, motivation is for amateurs. Like discipline is what carries you through. You got to, you got to <laughs> be able to get up and do the work when you don't want to. But I think just like everything else, like there's a spectrum here, you know, it isn't black and white. We live in a world of gray and mm-hmm. I cycle between motivation and discipline. I think mm-hmm. you need both to carry you through. And so finding extrinsic and intrinsic motivation is a huge thing for me. I take it from any source I can get it. Other divers, other mentors, other role models, yourself included, like there are plenty of people that you can look to for extrinsic motivation. So if I walk onto a pool deck and the best divers in the world are training, like that amps me up. Like I love seeing excellent diving. I love seeing excellence in any form. Like if I walk into a CrossFit gym and people are going at it, like that'll pump me up and I want to go work out. It's other sources that can light that fire within you. Intrinsic motivation comes from wanting to be the best that you can be. That's a big part as well. And I think what you want to establish here is the best that you can be, not the best that you are compared to everybody else. Comparison really is the thief of joy here. And so when you talk about intrinsic motivation, I think you really want to realize that you're just competing against yourself. Me trying to identify who I am, what is my value, what is success to me was a big part of that intrinsic motivation and realizing like, hey, all you got to do is be better than you were yesterday, 1% better every day. And even if you had a bad day, like this was not a failure, this was just a lesson learned and take that moving forward. That's been a huge piece for me. And I think, you know, discipline works in there as well. Like, I'm not going to say that that isn't a big piece. Like there are plenty of days when you're sick, you're tired, you're not feeling it, you don't want to do things extrinsically and intrinsically, motivation is not coming from any front. And so you do got to dig deep and you got to be like, hey, I'm going to David Goggins, I'm going to Jocko this, I'm going to put my game face on and we're going to do the work no matter what. It's a healthy balance of finding what gets you up and gets you moving and grooving throughout the day. I like that. So where, like when you guys hit, because you were, you know, what, six, seven years in when kind of COVID hit too, like how did COVID affect you guys? Because I know we're we're several years out of it now, but I feel like we're still seeing uh, we're just maybe even starting to see a lot of the ramifications of both like emotional kind of trauma that people went through, like physical access to facilities, things being canceled, like it rocked people in a lot of different ways. So I'm really curious how COVID affected you guys in your sport or you specifically as well. There were ups and downs that came from it for sure. And I mean, just me being able to say that there were ups, like if you made it through COVID and you can look back on that experience from 2020 to 22 to now, and you can say like, hey, there were some goods that came about from it. Like, we're lucky you did a good job because a lot of people lost a lot physically, mentally, emotionally loved ones. There was a lot of tough struggle there. But thankfully, you know, the world coming to pause in 2020 was actually a great year. Again, it gave me more time to work on the internal me and the focus and the things that I really wanted to do. Taking time off from training was tough. Getting back to cliff diving in 21 was rough. That was a stark wake up to my first event in 21. Felt like my first event in 2012 when I crashed in Bonifacio. Thankfully, it wasn't as bad of an experience. It was in France again. So there was some some, uh, (laughs) some rough wake up. It was crazy getting back up on the platforms because, you know, we had our last event towards the end of 2019. And then we didn't have our first event again until 2021. And again, two years. Yeah, like a year and a half, almost two years of of no high diving. And again, like Fort Lauderdale wasn't around at this time. Diving Canada hadn't really put up their platforms yet. No high diving training for 18 months and then trying to get back up there. Like, I remember being up on that platform in San Rafael, like, holy smokes, like, why am I so scared? So trying to find that groove again of getting back into the swing of things and finding my stability and my focus and being calm and centered up there was, was a struggle. It took a couple of events. 
and actually 21 was one of my worst years competing. Like I lost my permanent series on the oh, Red Bull Clip Diamond World Series. I had to come back as a wild card. It was tough. So, well, so were... that, that's got to be pretty humbling. Like having been one of the best athletes in that series and then going through not having it for a while and then coming back to a rough season where you're booted out of it. Like, I guess, where did that leave you? Like, how did you feel after that? Ooh, humbling is a is a good word for it. Yeah. I mean, the progression of the sport has been awesome. Not only did I have a rough season in 21, but also like these new guys are coming in and they're just yeah. hailing it. I mean, you know, the two Romanians that come in into the late 20 teens and now early 2020s, like Constantine and Catalan are absolutely insanely good. Gary's still crushing it. Aiden Heslop comes in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so competitive. Nikita Fedotov, like it's crazy how it was almost a given that me, Andy, and Steve could be in the top five, top 10, no problem, even on a bad day. And now it's like, holy smokes, we're all out of a job. None of us are in the top, like, like literally in 21 to 22, we lost three Americans on the permanent series. Oh man. So it was crazy. It was a harsh wake up call. And it was one of those things where it's like, okay, let's reevaluate, you know, where are you? Where do you want to be? What's it going to take to get there? Am I willing to put in the time, energy, and resources and training to be one of the best again? It was a wake-up call and it was a moment for me to refocus and get after it. And so I did. I came back pretty strong in 22. I had a really good start to the season and then unfortunately got hurt midway through and had to have that second rotator cuff surgery Mm -hmm. that I was talking about. So another, let's climb the mountain again. We're doing really good. And oh, hey, life throws a curveball at you and you get knocked down a couple steps off your pedestal, which Mm -hmm. is fine. You know, it was another learning lesson and another time for me to reevaluate, refocus and let's get better and come back stronger. So I have to ask, like, just from the, like, I guess, human perspective of like, as a high diver, can you make a full-time income? Or are you having, because you're only doing that a few months a year. Like, are you having to have another job on the side? Do you get enough sponsors? And then you get booted from the World Series and you're trying to make it back in. Like, how do you balance that? Because to be so focused to train to do something so hard, like that is expending a lot of time, energy and resources already. So how do you make that functionally work? Finding that balance is an individual challenge. And so, you know, it's no secret, any niche extreme sport, no, it's not a huge moneymaker. Like none of us are in this to make the buku bucks. There are a few of us that can do really well. If you're consistently on the podium and you're consistently in the top three, you can make an annual income that's based mostly off of prize money that sure might just pay your bills to live a full year. But again, that's the top 1%. Sponsorships are super hard to come by. They're few and far between. They don't pay a lot. And so you got to play the game. You know, there's different ways to promote yourself, create a brand. Big ups to Molly Carlson and for making Mm -hmm. their brands and being social media influencers and making a positive impact on the sports community. And they do a great job and and they can benefit from that in different ways and they can supplement their income in that way. But for most of us, yeah, you do have to pick up side jobs. Even from the early, early years of when I first came in, I've been a bartender, I've been a server, I've been a substitute teacher, I've always coached diving on the side. Mm -hmm. I do different social media engagements for different brands. I've put my hand at acting and stunt work and, you know, you really do whatever you can. Oh, I was uh, growing my hair out for Cameo. For COVID, I became a Bob Ross impersonator on Cameo. (laughs) Okay, that's just awesome. That might be my favorite job you've ever had. (laughs) It's it's actually incredible. I get to like afro my hair. I put on the blue shirt. I have a canvas and a paintbrush. I remember seeing pictures of that. I thought it was just like, I don't even know what it was for. But okay, that's awesome. It's explaining so much right now. (laughs) Exactly. So... You got to do what you got to do. And so, no, this is not a normal career. 
you have to figure out how to do it. You know, people around the world in cliff diving, they do different things. Personal trainers, there's a myriad of ways that you can supplement your income and make this a, a dream. But again, you got to make choices. You know, anytime you're spending on these side jobs, like it's taken away from your training and from your focus mm-hmm. and from your competitive career. It's a balance and it's a tricky one for sure. Olympic athletes are much the same, you know, like that's that same kind of, we don't have the big sponsors and the things mm-hmm. paying us all the time. So you kind of, you got to get scrappy, right? You just got to sometimes do what you got to do. And it, it can be a scary road, but I think you learn a lot of lessons in that too, that your sport can teach you how to get scrappy in life and getting scrappy in life is going to teach you how to operate in your sport. Like when you look at it, when you pull back a little bit, when you can have that kind of big picture view, it's like, wow, each of these things is actually growing me in really cool ways. you know. And I feel like you are the kind of person who is now like looking at all those things all the time. And you're always looking for the lessons, you're looking for the win. And I think having that attitude is so important. Like I made a journal because I'm a big fan of journaling. I think it's super important. That's how I learned about myself. Um, And I learned what was causing problems, what was helping me. You know, I just learned how to work through things because I was like evaluating what was wrong with me, you know, what I was doing right and wrong and like how to get better, what other people were doing. I was just trying stuff and keeping like logs of that, like helped me learn a lot. And so in the journal I created, it's a lot of focusing on gratitude because when you're focusing on gratitude, you can't process anxiety. It comes from the same place. So when you're focusing on things like that, you're actually exiting the anxiety from the picture, you know, focusing on priorities, like writing your goals down every day to know what you're shooting for. But every day, whether it was good or bad, writing down a lesson that you learned and what a win was, because even on the worst days, you can find a win in there, but you have to look for it. And a lot of times we don't want to like, maybe you're not like this, but for me, I could have this amazing day. And if I did one bad thing or one bad thing happened, sometimes I just hang on that. And it was like, what a horrible day. This wasn't mm-hmm. worth it, whatever. And then I look at the whole thing and I'm like, well, this is actually a really good day. I just had one bad moment, you know? And so it's really good. And I think healthy to look at things from that perspective and to force yourself to find the good in every day and how it's growing you or how you can change to become better. I feel like you're now wired like that. Like those are things you're actively seeking as well. And I love hearing you say that. It's a perspective. It's a mindset switch. And I think the gratitude piece is huge. That's been a big part of my journey as well and my journaling. And I'm forgetting the quote, but it's something like gratitude is the golden doorframe that a happy life walks through. And so realizing these things that we might look at as a bad day or a a loss or a frustrating thing, like, you know, we're so lucky. And Mm -hmm. you and I on this conversation, most of our listeners probably, if you live in the US or in a first world country, you have to realize that there are probably 6 billion people in this world that would instantly change lives with you and would hope to have the problems that you're having, the bad day that you think you just had. It really is a perspective change. And so... That's been a big piece of finding the happiness and finding the gratitude and the lessons learned. Like you were saying, you know, whatever situation you're in, whatever side job you got to pick up, whatever struggle you got to go through, like these are all things that can change you for the better as long as you look at them in the right way. So where are you at now? Like, how is the 2023 season? How are you feeling about next year? I know before we started recording, you were a little, you know, kind of gutted about high diving not being added to 2028. How is Dave doing? How's the sport of high diving kind of walk us through it all? It's complicated as life is full of ups (laughs) and downs and hopes and dreams and doubts and worries. But the sport itself is on a general trend upwards, which is super cool. Yes, it got affected by COVID. And we're still recovering from that. No, we haven't had a full season like we used to have post COVID just yet. But Red Bull is still going strong, which is amazing. They really are carrying the sport. USA Diving and World Aquatics and Diving Canada and Diving Australia, there's a, a bunch of federations that are really carrying us forward and, and mm-hmm. pushing us for more events. And, and the future does look bright. 
junior high diving is now a thing, which is so awesome. They had the first junior high diving world championships in Montreal. They just had the first junior Pan Am's high diving championships. And so it's so cool to see that, you know, divers are getting into this at a younger age. One of the things that Steve and I are going to focus on is really developing more of a grassroots program here in the States and beyond. And how can we get more people involved? So the sport itself is looking up. My personal career is probably coming to an end. I haven't thought about a specific retirement date just yet, but I'm definitely feeling my age and I'm feeling my injuries. And like I was saying, (laughs) it's getting more and more competitive. So this was my comeback season from surgery last year, and I was just happy to be competitive. You know, I only had an eight-month window from post-op to first competition, which isn't really enough time to give a full rotator cuff repair. It's, it's mm-hmm. due. So I didn't actually become 100% at any point during the season. It was really just like, hey, let's get through it. Let's see how we do. Let's do some easier dives mm-hmm. and see where we're at. You know, with the numbers, yeah, I'm on the bubble. I'm in ninth place overall, top eight, get permanent spots next year. We do have one event left. And yeah, we've got world championships in February. So it's not really a normal season. We don't have an off season this year, which is good and bad. Being busy is good, but I also like my downtime in the winter and I want to go ski and have fun. (laughs) So there's a lot going on. Yeah. I've been kind of wrestling with this question of like, hey, what's enough for me? What time is it in my career? Is it time to call it? Can I keep doing this? Am I being foolish chasing this silly dream? What is the way to go here? You know, it's funny. I was listening to your podcast with Brando on his episode, and I loved a lot of things that you pulled from there. Your purpose, your connection to diving, pushing yourself in the sport, making that transition, and still going after it into your 40s. And so maybe I can flip the question on you. Like, how did you know what was enough for you? How did you know it was time to stop? How did you feel about coming to the end of your career? You know, it's funny because I retired after my third Olympics when I was 30. I was like double the age of my competitors. I was really old, but I didn't really want to be done diving. But I had been married for six years. We were ready to start a family. I was 30. I was like, we probably need to do this really soon if we want to have kids. I never felt resolved to be done. Like it bothered me. Like I went to the London Olympics in 2012 and the Rio Olympics in 2016 with NBC as media as like a reporter and analyst and stuff. It was really cool to be there, but it was, I struggled. It was really hard for me to just watch, wondering, could I still be in the mix? Because like, for women in my event, the quality kind of dropped, you know, and it's not to say that as an insult to the women diving, but like where we had taken it in 2008. And then when that group kind of retired, there was not the same level of difficulty and consistency and things like that. And so it was frustrating for me to see that because I was like, could I still be in the mix? Could I still do it? And that kind of thought plagues me. Like, I'd rather put myself out there and fail miserably in front of the world just to know, like, all right, at least I gave it a shot and I won't always be wondering if I could. And so the fact that that was in my head for so long really, really bothered me. I would get frustrated when people would tell me, oh, you know, I just, I was done with my sport after college. Like I was just done. I was just ready to be done. I have no regrets. And I'm like, I have never felt that way. Like that, it bothered me so much to hear people say they were ready to retire. Cause I'm like, how do you know? How come I don't know? Like, how come this isn't a thing? And so at 39, after watching the Rio Olympics, I was like, I talked to my husband. I was like, I, I just really wonder if I could still do it. And he goes, all right, we're in a position where he could stay home with the kids. Like we could do like a part-time thing. He was coaching part-time. And he goes, why don't you just take the fall of like 2016, just be all in for like, you know, four months or something. And then you'll know, you'll know if like my body can't handle this or maybe I can do it. Like, you'll know, just go full-time and just see what happens. Well, by January, I had my entire 10 meter list back off. And I was like, uh, I guess I'm going to do this. Like, <laughs> no, you know, Okay. So I I did. I came back and it was going really well. I even got gainer three and a half off. I didn't compete it, but like I couldn't believe it. 39 years old, I had a gainer three and a half off Timmy. That was kind of crazy. But you know, I was really excited. But then 
we were bringing home a kid from Ethiopia and we had struggles with that. So I was kind of out of the pool for a while trying to bring her home. Then we got her home. I got back in. Then I found out I had all this damage, nerve damage in my arm and I needed a plate in my neck. I had to have a two-level cervical fusion. So that took me out for a year. Like it was this kind of up and down, but I was still trying to figure out like, well, I guess I can still do this. I need to still try this. So I I had a year off trying to recover from the next surgery. I get back in, I'm competing again and I'm doing well. And then COVID hits, then the Olympics are postponed for a year. And I was like, okay, I was going to be done after this. Now I'm like, not sure if I want to do it. I guess I have more time. So that's good. But like, we didn't have access to facilities until two months before the trials the next year. So it was like this up and down. And it was really frustrating for me because I, I did get to compete at trials, which was really cool to be at an event like that again. But I was really frustrated because I had never been so ill-prepared for an event. I didn't want to end like that. Like that was just really frustrating for me. I don't really care what anybody else thought. Everybody's like, oh, it's so great. You're doing amazing. You're however old and you're here. And then I was like, are you kidding? I'm diving like an idiot. Like this is not how I was training. Like this is not, you know, so it was really frustrating for me. And I didn't want to be done, but yet I kind of wanted to be done. And so it took me a year of kind of, I don't know what I'm doing. I just feel really lost because I, I wasn't satisfied with how it ended. You know what I mean? But then my husband had to go back to work and I got calls like people wanted me to help like kind of coach them through some things. So I started like coaching some people on performance and mindset. And then I had made a course when I was recovering from my neck surgery. So I, I like brought that back and I started doing more of that. And I was like, wow, I, I really enjoy this. I don't have to be in the pool hurting. I don't have to put a swimsuit on every morning. I can actually be with my kids a little more, but yet I still feel involved. I feel like I'm in it because I'm working on the mental side of it. And that was always kind of my passion. And mm -hmm. so finally, I mean, it's taken me a while, but like now I feel like, okay, I'm glad I'm not in the pool right now. Like I'm really enjoying this side. For me, it was never this immediate, like, I know I'm done. <laughs> like I tried to force that a few times and it didn't stick. So all our journeys are different. There's no perfect answer. Some people just know and some people don't. And so, you know, I don't know what your journey is like. That's probably not really helpful. You're like, well, I was hoping you're you going to tell an me what to do, but <laughs> just be in the season. Like if you want to do it for the season, commit to the season, commit to a meet and, and just mm. see how you feel, but just really enjoy the process, you know, and mm. again, find the wins. Like I wasn't happy with how it ended in 2021. But man, I got to do my dives again. And that was really what I wanted. I missed flipping. I missed doing the dives. And I got to do that again for a little while. And most people in their 30s and 40s don't get to do that. So that was pretty special. I'm I'm counting that as my win. Even it wasn't this perfect ending or whatever, you know, it was still special. And so I'm grateful for that. And I feel like that can help me move on. This transition from your last event at trials, still diving, and moving into the role that you are now as an MPC. Was there like a total reinvention? Did you have to like scrap the old goal list and bring up a whole new one? Do you change your definition of success? Was this a big process or was it a, I mean, it took time, but was this a relatively smooth transition of Laura the diver to Laura the NPC? I don't do anything smoothly. I do everything <sighs> backwards and I do it all wrong. I fail and I land on my face and then I have to decide if I want to get back up and try it again. Like that's how diving was. That's how gymnastics was. That's how this has been. Because I don't know how to run a business. I don't know what I'm doing. So I, I was like, well, what would I do in diving? I would get a coach and I would try to learn. So I started taking online mm -hmm. courses and trying to learn how to do different things. And I would kind of pull it together and I would do something really awesome. And then I would like not be consistent. And so like I would have this moment of greatness and then it would just fall flat for a few months, you know? And so it was this learning process and it was really frustrating. But in the middle of it, I realized, wow, this is just like what I did in my diving career. This is very similar. And I was like, why am I not applying the same skills that I learned in diving? The same thing I'm trying to teach people 
mm-hmm. into my business. And so when I started doing that, it just started going better because I was implementing goals. I was setting goals. I was creating plans to get there. I was creating maps of like, okay, well, how am I going to market this? How, who am I going to reach here? What do I want to promote here? Like I started just crafting a roadmap to get to my goal and doing things like that really helped. Finding the wins, seeing what didn't go bad, trying to take my emotions out. I, I'm allowed to be emotional for a minute, but then I got to separate my emotions and look at this you know, as an evaluation and see what was good, what was bad, what do I need to change moving forward? And just being more vulnerable of like, it's hard when you're really good at something and you're like the best in the world at something to then start over and be a nobody and be crappy at something. But walking through that again, it grows you in such beautiful ways and you will become better at that thing if you just keep at it and you keep trying mm-hmm. again. So it's kind of just learning to take those skills we learn in our sport and applying it into our life. Like again, your job, whatever you're doing, it can go back and forth. So it's really like when I'm giving people advice and telling them how they should think about things, I'm like, okay, now how can I do that in, in what I'm doing right now? Because I need that lesson too. And yeah, I mean, becoming your own inner coach can be a tough thing, even though you're doing it. Like it is your mm-hmm. job. You are a coach to other people, but applying it to yourself can be can be such a tricky thing. You were mentioning too, like a support system as well. Like I've gotten into a group of business women that we meet every week. And so I have people I can look up to. I have people I can ask questions of, people who support me and I can tell them my failures or my worries or what I need help with. And they're great. They've been through it. And so they understand. So I think just like sport, you need that support system. It's the same in life beyond. And there is a hard transition too. When you're done as an athlete and you're going into this real world, like you lose community, you lose a coach, you lose purpose, you lose drive, you lose your goals, like you lose these things. And so to be cognizant of that as you're switching gears to like, okay, I need a support system. I need some kind of coach or mentor. You know, I need these things in place so that I can make a better transition into it and and, and give yourself grace in the fact that it might be bumpy and that's okay. Like that's normal. And finding that certainty and that resolve. I mean, like you said, switching from going out of diving and then being like, oh, am I actually done? I don't know. Like, I want to (laughs) know. You know, if we as humans, like we would rather have the certainty of misery than the misery of uncertainty. And you were (laughs) like, I would just want to know, like, can I do this or can I not? And so, you know, going through that whole process of then coming back Mm -hmm. and maybe it not being the ending that you wanted or the best dives that you could do. And then again, having this transition period of uncertainty to now, you said like, you know, now we're in the end of 2023, you actually feel pretty certain about what you're doing, who you are, what you want to do and and spend your days. And that's awesome. And, mm-hmm. and this is a period that I have to embrace. Like my life has been so structured up until this point yeah. to a degree. You know, I had my transitions, but for the last 10 plus years, like it was just a given, like I was going to go through the cliff diving season and then I was going to have off season and come back and do it again. You know, it's interesting how we chop up our years, you know, with school, the year is from fall until spring. And that's when it starts back over. And now with cliff diving, it was like, okay, now it's like spring to fall. And so, you know, what does my year look like? What is start? What is finished? What am I doing? Yeah, this. And it's fun, you know, being able to embrace this uncertainty and being like, hey, it's okay to not know. And let's figure this out. Enjoy the journey and go along the way. And again, like we like being comfortable. We like knowing what our structure is, but being uncomfortable is where we grow. Knowing that this doesn't feel great. I don't like it. I don't know what's happening, Mm -hmm. but I will grow in this. Like knowing that and being able to tell yourself that and remind yourself like, this is just a small season and I'm growing Mm -hmm. in this. And that's, that's okay. It's okay to walk through this, you know? And Hey, dude, reach out to me if you need something. I'm here. Ah, please. Yes. (laughs) I want more conversations with Laura. And then you got to tell me how to do my hair all nice and curly. Yeah. I'll I'll send you some (laughs) intercents. All right. I like it. Perfect, Dave. Oh my gosh. Where can we follow you online to just cheer you on and just be inspired by you on the daily? 
Oh, thank you. Yeah. Instagram is my biggest platform where I share content. I'm trying to grow, define my own personal brand in my business. DavidColtery.com is going to be a real website soon. You can go there and find out my projects. Yeah. Steve and I are going to do this big launch. We're going to hopefully come to clubs around the state and start pushing cliff diving in a grassroots movement. So there's lots of fun projects to be involved in. So stay tuned and let's work together. That's awesome. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Laura. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.